You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey friends, great to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight, in the spiritual fight. And right now today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nation. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. Great to have you with us. Really great to have you with us today. I don't know what kind of week you're having, but I hope it's blessed. And even if uh, you're struggling, just remember God does some of his best work through our struggles, through our hard times, and through our difficulties. I, uh, I want to turn your attention uh, to a couple of opportunities for you. First off, uh, you know that I teach at Wesley Biblical Seminary, been here for 35 years. So I just want to urge you to check us out at wbs.edu. We have a lay program, a lay institute. We have an undergraduate program. We have master's programs, and we have a doctoral program, a DMIN. So something for all serious disciples. So check it out at wbs.edu. All right. Number two. Some of you have wondered, the, the thing we keep talking about, 5Q discipleship, what is that? What, what, what are you talking about? Well, first off, we got a book out on the market right now. Uh, you can go to amazon.com and just say, let me check out 5Q discipleship. That's the number five and then Q, 5Q discipleship, or just type in my name, Matt Friedemann, and you'll get to that thing eventually. But having said that, uh, some of you say, well, I don't know, so sure I want to buy a book. Can I get something free? And indeed, you can. Uh, you can get a quick start guide to 5Q Discipleship by simply going to 5Q-Discipleship.com. So check that out someday soon, 5Q-Discipleship.com. Item number three. Uh, and this is another free resource. So, you know, I have a book out called Discipleship in the Home. Uh, then I made the new Discipleship in the Home. Had to add a couple chapters to sort of update it, and that's brand new. That's been out a couple months. If you want an audio version of the new Discipleship in the Home, you can go to discipleshipinthehome.com, and uh, you will be able to listen to it, and uh, it's not a, it's not, I'm not reading it, but somebody is that's a lot better reader than I am, and a lot more, uh, <laughs> how shall I say, a lot more verbal than I am, uh, a lot more eloquent than I am, so he's got that going, and I hope you'll check it out. So, three things, WBS. Dot edu Wesley Biblical Seminary, wbs.edu. Number two, the quick start guide to 5Q Discipleship at the number five, 5qdiscipleship.com. And three, the audio book, discipleshipinthehome.com. And uh, those are resources for you, and I just I'd love to hand those opportunities on to you. Okay, in my church right now, we're going through a sermon series um, leadership to young leaders. And basically it's the pastoral epistles. Paul's talking to Timothy and to Titus. And I thought, man, these are pretty good. I mean, I don't think I'm a, I don't think I, I don't think I'm a great speaker. I don't think I really get great sermons together, but sometimes these things, you know, just ought to be handed on. Cause I thought maybe you'd like them. 
And so one of the ones we're dealing with is Titus, obviously. And the second chapter of Titus seems to be, I didn't know this actually, until I started researching it. Apparently, Titus 2 is like big stuff in the Bible. I want you to, it's all big stuff. You ought to take all of it seriously, but Titus chapter 2 is big. Now, let's just, what I would say is we got a couple of things we're going to do right now, and I think you are going to really like it. If you, you've got to be patient, you're going to have to hang in there with me, but let's, uh, let's look at Titus chapter 2. Now, there's a guy out there named Brian Litvin, and Brian says, you know, when you look at history, Christianity probably shouldn't even exist. Uh, not only did the fledgling faith erect, erect large obstacles to conversion, I mean, they had these strict moral requirements, uh, they had secretive, exclusive worship services that, by the way, you couldn't even get into. You wanted, hey, let me, let's go take in a worship service. Couldn't do it. You had to earn your way in. I mean, this is a hard religion. And then Romans basically despised Christians and sometimes even put them to death. So kind of, you know, if you say it shouldn't exist, that's probably very true. But it did, ex it does exist, obviously. It did exist and it grew and grew and grew and is still growing. And with that surprising turn of events, there's a guy named Alan Kreider that's written a book, and I recommend this book to you. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, uh, subtitled The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. I, I think you ought to check out this book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I loved reading it. Now, Kreider is, uh, is a seminary professor in Elkhart, Indiana, but he attributes the church's success to four key factors. Chief among them is the virtue of patience, which Kreider takes to be the most essential aspect of early Christianity's upward trajectory. And you say, really? Patience? You think that's the most important essential aspect of the rise of the faith? Well, he says so. So patience. Number two, communal actions or communal habits or, you know, church habits that are taught to the newcomers. And then number three, catechesis and worship. We're going to teach you about the ins and outs of the doctrine of the faith and teach you to worship. And those things together, patience, communal habits, uh, teaching them the doctrine and teaching them the worship created the fourth thing, and that is a ferment, a kind of internal energy that simply couldn't be contained. Now, I read that book. I love that book. And when I read Titus chapter 2, it reminded me of that book. Now, Cretans, and this is written to Titus, and as you remember, one of the things that uh, Paul says in the fifth verse of this book is, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. You're going to set in order things in Crete. Apparently they're a mess, and you're going to set them in order. Now, Cretans believe Greek gods were just mere men and women that elevated to deities. They thought that most of the gods were born on their island. <laughs> that must be good for tourism. Hey, they're all born here, all the gods, including Zeus. Zeus was born. So there you had it, a, a, a way that Crete could brag about itself. And, and, and Zeus apparently was a, a, a buried there, allegedly buried there at least. So in their minds, Crete was kind of the quote-unquote mecca of God and goddess worship. Now, Zeus 
loved to seduce women by any means necessary, including seduction, including lying. The Cretans loved it. They, they, they loved that about Zeus. So they immortalized him because of it. They took pride in this kind of self-serving, promiscuous way that he went. And so Paul needs Titus as a young leader to know about all of that and to man up and basically refute Zeus proclivities in the church and in future converts to the church. Titus, you got to make it crystal clear that Jesus is very unlike Zeus and show how we ought to conduct our lives, not as liars, not as seducers, but as Christ-like. So the first thing Paul does is to tell Titus in chapter 1 that Jesus and our God does not lie, straight up. This is a God that does not lie. Very subtle, right? <laughs> then he quickly tells Titus, you need to appoint leaders who will not live lives of lies. And so he has a long list of leadership qualities. Now, I'm wondering, when we go to choose leaders, do we use these kinds of qualities? Uh, blameless, faithful, not overbearing, not quick-tempered. By the way, if you're a leader, and all of you are, who are listening to this podcast, think in terms of, is this me? Not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, hospitable, loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and firmly holding to the trustworthy message. In other words, very Christ-like, very un-Zeus-like. So chapter two is what really rock, rocks my world, and that's where we're going to spend all the rest of our time here today on this podcast. Uh, how do, is it that we're going to elevate Jesus and displace Zeus as the main God on the throne of Cretan hearts? Now, some of you will know the name Adam Clark, famous Bible commentator in the 18th and 19th centuries. This is what Adam Clark said about this very chapter, chapter two of Titus. Few portions, he said, few portions of the New Testament excel this chapter. It may well form the creed, system of ethics, and textbook for every Christian preacher. Does any man inquire what is the duty of a gospel minister? And by the way, again, we're all ministers, y'all. So send him to the second chapter of the epistle to Titus for a complete answer. <laughs> wow. That, that's what Adam Clark said. So yeah, let's just assume you and I are gospel ministers. So let's keep going. And I'm just going to break this down into five quick things. Number one, let's look at the patient ferment of all age groups and life situations. So chapter two, verse two, older men, verse three, older women, verse four, younger women, verse six, young men, verse nine, slaves. And, and then if you go one more verse in the next chapter, chapter three, all the people. Now that's all age groups. That's all life situations. No matter your age group, says Paul, no matter your life situation, says Paul, you need to be Christ-like. Each age group, each life circumstance Listen, and, and we all know this. We all have, no matter where we're at, we all have our challenges and unique possible penetration opportunities into the Zeus culture, into for, for, for you and I, into American culture, or maybe you're listening this internationally, into Nigerian culture, into Brazilian culture. We all have our unique opportunities, but we all have to come to the table to make this thing what it needs to be. And some of us will be big timers and some of us won't. The point is, play your role. And by the way, play it 
as you're playing your role, you might notice that you win this week, but you might notice that you lose. Stay faithful anyway. You might notice that you win this month, but you might lose. Stay faithful anyway. That, I think that's the message of patient ferment. The patient ferment of the early church. How did the church so grow? Alan Crider says, patience, patience, patience. Because when you live like Christ, you might win this year, but you might get crucified. And if you live like this, you might win in your lifetime, but you might not. Patience, patience, patience. Because if we continue with great faithfulness and with great faith to live like he wants us to live and teach our children and teach our science school class and teach the people in our church to do the same, then generation after generation after generation, living like Jesus wants us to live, eventually we win big. That's the patient ferment. And you just need to know it's for all age groups and all life situations across a long period of time doing the right thing. So right now, some of you are living the right way and you're getting pummeled. Guess what? Keep living the right way. Have faith that it's going to work out for the kingdom and for his glory. Just keep slogging. Now, we talk about all age groups and life situations. I'm mindful of the University of Pennsylvania oh, a wife, wife of a professor that was in a room, and it was a room full of a lot of powerful women, lawyers and doctors. And uh, everybody's asking, hey, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And so someone came up to this uh, University of Pennsylvania professor's wife and said, what do you do? Now, she was a housewife. She was raising kids. She wasn't dressed quite as snazzy, and she didn't look quite as... Uh, how shall we say, as impressive as the doctors, the lawyers, the ladies in the room. But she says, well, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian ethic. They, they might be change agents in the teleologically prescribed utopia in the age to come. <laughs> whoever was asking a question, their eyes got wide, looked right back here, and the housewife said, and what is it you do for a living? my dear. Hey, y'all, let's just do what Jesus asks us to do. And over the long term, maybe, just maybe, no, not even maybe, it will turn out great for the king and his kingdom. Number one, there's the patient ferment of all age groups and life situations. Play your role. Play it well. Play it faithfully. And number two is this, the patient ferment of subjection and of submission. We'll get more down into this in, in chapter, uh, in, in point number four, but look how Paul uses the word submission. Uh, in, in verse four, he says, urge the younger women to be subject, to be submissive to their husbands. Uh, verse nine, this will really rile you. Teach slaves, slaves, to be submissive, to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And then, again, one more verse uh, into the next chapter, 3.1. Remind all the people to be subject, to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Because Paul saw that somehow submission is more important than power plays. Now, we live in a culture, American culture, Western culture, that is real big into the power play. But what if we found out in heaven, looking back at the history of man, 
that it was actually the submitters that had more power than those who were making the power plays. And in heaven, we say, you know, I probably should have placed more faith in God and in the second chapter of Titus to know I should have been submissive the whole way through. I would have been much more powerful, much more effective, much more of a Great Commission Christian than I ended up being. Y'all takes faith to submit. It takes faith to be subject nonetheless. And by the way, I think there are appropriate ways to do it and inappropriate ways. But on the whole, appropriate plus inappropriate is still going to equal do it well for the glory of God. Do it in a holy way that Christ might be exalted. Number three, the patient ferment of works. Now, works comes up, at least in my translation. I got the New American Standard. Work comes up at least four times here. So it says like this, be busy at home. Set an example of doing what is good. Do what is good. Do whatever is good. So in this chapter, four times, apparently something like works shows up. Now, remember that old song, we are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord. Remember this? We are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord. You're listening by podcast. Go ahead and sing along. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And here we go. We all know this line. Sing it. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our, you know this, you know this. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Yeah, but y'all, it's not a feeling love that they'll know. It's not the feeling of love that they'll know we're Christians. It's love expressed. It's love working. It's love applied. It's loving mercy. It's love at the prison. It's love at your business. It's love in the school. It's love in the nursing homes. It's not just a feeling. It might not be a feeling at all, but it's demonstrated love. And if you do this over the long term, if you do this as patient ferment, if you do it from one life to another, from one generation to another, guess what happens? Christianity, the Jesus of Christianity wins. Now, you know, I I like to watch basketball. I don't watch lots of it, but I watch enough to, you know, got my favorite team and and uh, we'll try to watch them when I can. I'm interested in that favorite team of mine. When they're behind at halftime by 20, and it just so happens my favorite team is the, is the reigning national champions. Yeah, it's the Kansas Jayhawks. They were down by some unbelievable, uh, what, down by 15 or something, 15 or 16. Halftime, it was, a, it was a, as, as low down as a team has ever been and still come back to win. They were down big time, 15 points or something. They were down big time at halftime. And really what coaches have to tell their players when you're down by that much is, guys, when we come back for the second half, we have to win every minute of that ball game. We have to win the first minute. We have to win the second minute. We have to win the third minute. It's not, hey, we need to win the second half. No, you got to do more than that. You're down 15. You've got to win every minute and win it in such a way that you will have the lead score at the end. And guys, and this is what I love, any coach with their salt is going to say something like, there are no 20-point plays. Slam dunking in a very impressive way that gets, gets the crowd on their feet is a two-point play. That's it. That's all we get for that. Yeah, it's it's nice. It might be a momentum, but it's still just two points. There are no 20-point plays, so just come back two or three points per minute. 
And it was the same thing with the Roman Empire. It's the same thing in our world. Y'all, people don't think much of Christianity today. Has anybody noticed? You look at any poll, and they'll sh it'll show you. They think of us pretty dismally. And you want to know why? Because they don't know us by our love. Can I go through that list again? Love expressed, love working, love applied, loving mercy, love at the prison, love at your business, love in the school, love in the nursing homes, love in the tough places, love in the hard places, love in the dark places. Not just a feeling, but demonstrated love. And there's a patient affirmative works that if you continue working across the days, the weeks, the months, and the years, eventually good, really, really good things will happen. And then number four is simply this, the patient ferment of godly character. I mean, what an extraordinary list of character qualities in this chapter. I've already read for you some. He loves lists. I mean, Paul loves his lists. But in this, he says, okay, how are we going to take the Roman Empire? By being temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, loving, enduring, reverent, good, pure, kind, submissive, serious, sound, trustworthy, upright, godly, obedient, peaceable, considerate, gentle. Now, there's all kinds of things. Boy, you can look at that list and do anything you want with it. But it's interesting to me. What's repetitive on the list? Self-control shows up four times in chapter two. Now, it's variously translated. Self-control is one thing, but sometimes it's patience. And then soundness, sound, shows up three times. Sound means whole, healthy, without error, reliable. That's what sound means. Whole, healthy, without error, reliable. Now, we actually are the people that think God can do that in us, make us whole. He can make us healthy, spiritually healthy, spiritually whole. He can make us, with, to, that we could live without error, that we could be reliable. And if we are, the patient ferment of soundness wins. If we could be self-controlled or patient, the patient ferment of self-control eventually wins. Now, in all that list, all these extraordinary character qualities, one of the things, and the thing I'm most excited about, because I, I, I had a 5Q group this morning. We talked about this, and I was so enthused. And it's, it's something that's almost repulsive. Uh, it's verse 9, Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Teach, get a load of this now, slaves. Now, I want to stop right there and say, oh, my goodness, really? Slaves? Why didn't Paul say, hey, get rid of slavery? Why didn't Jesus just get rid of slavery? I don't know, but I can tell you right now, Jesus came down and sparked a movement that's going to happen within the context of slavery. Eventually, slavery goes away, but it never fully goes away. Listen, guys, today, in this world, today, we have 50 million people living in slavery today. It needs to be eradicated. It needs to be eradicated then. needs to be eradicated now. Need to be eradicated in England. William Wilforce saw to it. needs to be eradicated in America. And we saw to that, except even now we got sex trafficking, which is a, a, a kind of slavery. I mean, it's hard to get rid of because of the evil of men and women's hearts. 
Having said that, Paul nonetheless says then, knowing full well, slavery is not good. He says, nonetheless, teach slaves to be submissive, to be subject to the masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Oh, 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 oh. I mean, this is one of the this is one of the verses that drives people crazy crazy because of that slavery word. But I'm going to say the kind of slavery then probably is not the kind of slavery we're thinking about today. But nonetheless, the kind of slavery they had then was nonetheless called slavery, and God apparently saw that it was going to be an avenue of substantial evangelism, of substantial impact. Yeah, slavery was going to be, because in your slavery, says Paul, be so adorned with the character qualities of Jesus that you make God look good. You say, oh, there's no way we could live in such a way to make God look good. Only he can make us look good. Well, he in you will provide you an opportunity to be the Christmas bulb that is on the Christmas tree. And the Christmas tree is the doctrine of God. And you are the bulb that adorns that doctrine. Yes. And what's fascinating about this is this becomes one of the long list of John Wesley. He says, here is the character of a Methodist. Now, we had this catechism called Hidden in the Heart. Highly recommended to you. That's another thing you can get on Amazon.com, a children's catechism, Hidden in the Heart. But in there we say, hey, what is the list of John Wesley's character of Methodists. Well, here it is. Here we go. The list of John Wesley's character of Methodists goes like this. They love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything they give thanks. Their hearts are lifted to God at all times. They love every man as much as their own soul. They are pure in heart. God reigns alone in their lives. They keep all the commandments. They do all to the glory of God. They adorn. Here we go. The last characteristic of John Wesley's characteristics of a Methodist. They adorn the doctrine of God in all things. And that becomes, this phrase in Titus that has to do with slavery becomes one of John Wesley's favorite teachings about what it means for us to be people of holy character. We adorn the doctrine of God. We live to make God look attractive. Anything? How, how, how dare Paul? <laughs> how dare he say such a thing? Y'all, listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you straight up. A lot of people have a bad opinion about God, and you can live in such a way where they will have a good opinion. You can make God attractive. By His grace, you can make Him attractive. And I'm just thinking, oh my goodness. But listen, all kinds of people I could pick out right now to say, who in my life made God attractive to me? Do you know of anybody in your life? Can you think of them right now? Who in your life made God attractive to you? I'm thinking right now, Grandma's Oath. Uh, she lived about a block away from us, uh, and, and she was an elderly lady, uh, just kind of leaned over and walked and very old, seemed like she was had to be 120 when we knew her. But she took care of us when mom had to work to make ends meet. So Grandma Zoth came over. We went over to Grandma Zoth's house, and we saw, saw how much she loved Grandpa. Now, Grandpa had Alzheimer's. Grandpa just acted crazy. And he was a little bit almost hard to deal with, but I, we saw, all of us saw 
grandma love grandpa? Uh, we saw how godly she was. We saw that she had a regular open prayer book. It didn't matter if we were in the room or not. She opened up that prayer book and went to work. I'm just telling you, there's some people that have done that for you. Now God says, because that was done for you. The doctrine of God. God was made attractive. Because of somebody out there, you need to do that for other people. In my 5Q group this morning, somebody says, I'm going to tell you my application point for this. I think God's asked me, hey, who can you be a slave for today? Who do you need to be enslaved to today? And someone else piped in, or think about it this way. With whom do you need to assume the lower posture with today? Meaning, like Jesus at the upper room, when God in the flesh knelt down and washed manure and dust and grime off of the feet of disciples. Oh, my goodness. The patient ferment of all age groups and life situations, the patient ferment of submission and subjection, the patient ferment of good works, the patient ferment of godly character. And finally this, the patient ferment of hope. Chapter 11 says, for the, uh, excuse me, verse 11 of chapter 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and world passions and to live self-controlled. There's that thing again, self-controlled. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And we do so while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The patient ferment of hope. We, ladies and gentlemen, are people of hope. I got a painting on my wall up here. A very famous painting. The artist drew it with a woman on top of a globe. She's blindfolded. She is bent over. She looks in total despair. I'm looking at it right now. She's blindfolded. She has a harp, a lyre, and it looks like total agony and total pitifulness and total loss. But the painting is actually called Hope. Why is it called Hope? Because if you look carefully, there's still one string on that harp. One. You got to look carefully to see it. But there's one string still left on the harp. And if you look very, very carefully, there's one star still in the sky. Y'all, if you still have one string, you still have one star, then there is still hope. I went to a Pentecostal camp meeting in my youth. I think I was in junior high. Now, remember, there were a number of things that happened, but one of the things that happened was a song. Most people would even call it silly song today. But any of you remember, Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon, many will meet their doom, trumpets will sound. All the dead will rise, rising to meet the skies, going where no man dies, heaven were bound. That song, I still remember today because of that camp meeting. He's coming. He's coming. <laughs> That's our blessed hope, folks. He's coming. 
our great and glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to meet him in that sky. That is our hope. And if you can hope today, and you can hope for not only today, but for this week, and hope not only for this week, but for this year, and let's just say things don't go well, even with that hope, but you continue to hope anyway. If you can hope this decade, and maybe this is a terrible decade, and nonetheless, you continue to hope. And and let's just say with your whole life, let's say not much good seems to be happening, but I'm going to hope anyway. I'm going to have faith anyway. I'm going to love anyway. I'm going to work anyway. I'm going to exude godly character anyway. By his grace, I'm going to submit anyway. And let's just say your life doesn't end all that great. The patient ferment of the early church is you've nonetheless set a great example for others. And eventually, eventually, things really turn out wonderful for crazy people who are willing to settle down into patient ferment. All right, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedemann. Check out our Facebook page and check me out on Twitter. I'm on Twitter if you'd like to find me there. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you. My daughter thanks you. My my sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. Want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.